WZAB Sweetwater, a service of Salem Communications. This is 880 AM, The Biz, The Biz. Your news, your entertainment, your business. We're on a mission from God. This is The Rich Rossman Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Rich Rothman Show, 5 o'clock straight up here in uh, wonderful uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. Good to be with you today. And uh, an interesting week. market's been doing fairly well. Some exciting things happening we'll talk about. Uh, relates to car industries. And, of course, everyone is, you know, really talking and chatting about the General Motors scenario and the Chrysler Corporation scenario. And, of course, you notice Ford doesn't get any dis- discussion right now because they're in this whole separate category at the moment. Something we'll talk about later and get some more of the Ford people back on the show in the next few weeks. But certainly General Motors, or some people are saying Government Motors, um, is, is a top hot topic. And to that point, in the first half of the show today, we're going to have our good friend Peter Cohen, We'll be calling in from uh, the Boston area. Uh, of course, Peter's Peter Cohen Associates, and he's listed, blogged on all sorts of CNNs and major television ca- cable networks, as well as being on things like Yahoo and AOL, and uh, you know, known throughout the United States. Uh, and we've been following with Peter the discussion of General Motors. Uh, so, welcome to the Rich Rothman Show. The number here is eight six six nine five four forty two seventy six. Eight six six nine five four four two seven six if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, we'd love to have you on the show and give you a chance to say what you think you have to say. I'm sure there are a lot of GM folks out there, a lot of people who were GM folks out there, and uh, have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, it's an emotional issue because a lot of people say, you know, it's their own fault, it's the way it should have been, that they, uh, they didn't pay attention to the market for the last 30 years. They had a weird CEO who lost market share from 95% down to 19%. On the other hand, people say what they were selling. They did sell 10, and a half, uh, 10 million cars last year, and uh, uh, 10 million people bought cars. And the question is, what happened? How did this happen? You know, Alfred Sloan once said, what's good for General Motors is good for America, and that goes back to the 30s. Uh, when he was the uh, chairman of uh, General Motors, because it was the largest manufacturing company in the United States, in the largest manufacturing sector of the United States. So the concept of them going bankrupt is uh, is a bit scary, and uh, and, and it's just uh, almost uh, nightmare to think about because it's something that you would never think that you would have seen in this day and age. But then again, we never thought we'd see a, a, a an economy. Uh, being so desperately sick, uh, as uh, you know, when people said, "Oh my God, this is worse than you know, as bad as the depression back in the uh, in the 30s," uh, not exactly correct, but uh, certainly it, it worried people. So the car companies took a huge hit, and Chrysler, of course, filed bankruptcy prior to uh, General Motors, and we'll talk about that with Peter as well. And uh, and then, of course, Ford has not. Whereas Chrysler um, and and General Motors have taken TARP funds, they took money, they had bailout money. Billions of dollars of bailout money uh, going to General Motors, about $50 billion going there. The question is, will we see it again? Probably not. We'll discuss that with Peter. Chrysler took a huge amount of uh, bailout money as well. And the question is, are we going to see that again? And the answer to that is probably the same. Probably not. Uh, Chrysler's going down the road of merging, and it looks like they're going to be merging with Fiat, which I find to be amazing because I don't see too many Fiats out there. Fiat was a car that was popular in the United States many years ago. I had one. I had a Fiat Spider convertible back in in the 70s sometime. And it was a lot of fun driving it, except it did break, let me think, a lot. And it broke some more, and then it kind of broke some more. 
but you did look good in it, sitting in the in the uh, parking lot of the uh, of the Fiat uh, company, uh, waiting for service to be held. So I find it unusual that we're going to be selling out some of the best assets over from Chrysler over to Fiat and see if that works well, and um, uh, so much for that. Now, the question is about General Motors. Where do they go with this? Love to have your thoughts on it. 866-954-4276. Right here in the studio, if you want to get on the queue and get part of this, uh, feel free to use that number. 866-954-4276. If you're sitting in traffic, make a phone call. Talk to us. You'll be actually be talking to a number of people in the cars around you, so we'll give you a chance to do that. But the question is, you know, what really did happen? And, and what do we think is going to go uh, on with General Motors going forward? Do they have the product line? You know, do they, are they really diversified in the sense that we know that uh, uh, Ford Motor Company, uh, we know over the last two years uh, since Malelli has been there as the chairman and CEO of the company, actually CEO of the company, chairman still uh, Bill Ford, um, moved that company down a whole different road. You know, down a whole different road. That is, they were producing product that got 40 miles to the gallon and up. They had the fusion coming out. They have all these different engines and hybrid engines. They have a huge hybrid line coming out starting right now. And we've had a number of the research design folks and head of uh, divisions on the show over the last few years, uh, last, well, last few months. And also, uh, they, they did not get hung up on this whole SUV truck thing. Uh, that if you think about General Motors and look at their product line, what do you think of right away? They have all these huge SUV, you know, seven passenger deals, including this weekend. I saw an ad, and I'm sure you did too, for the new Cadillac Escalade, which is a huge truck that you can drive. It's a very popular car. It gets stolen a lot. So understand if you're in a Cadillac Escalade, you do run the chance of uh, having it ripped off. Uh, we'll talk about that. The new Cadillac Hybrid, which they're touting as being, wow, what a breakthrough. It's going to get 20 miles to the gallon. Not exactly a breakthrough, but then again, hey, you know, what do I know? I'm just this kid from New York who always grew up loving cars. So we're going to talk about cars for a while today. Second half of the show, we're going to have Dr. Charles Russo. Charlie's going to be here. We're talking about some of the myths of socialized medicine. Some of the ideas that people have that, hey, socialized medicine is great, and we're going to get out there, and we're going to be just like the Europeans and the Canadians, and everything's wonderful except, is it? Not quite sure it is. We have a lot of people saying it isn't. A lot of people saying at least it gives everybody a chance to have health care. What are the true statements and what are the myths? And we're going to talk about that with Dr. Charles Russo when we come back. So we're right here on the Rich Rothman Show, and we're going to uh, take your calls at 866-954-4276. We're going to talk a little bit about when we come back the stock market and housing data. was a little bit better today. Uh, kind of exciting. The housing starts were up. 6.7% uh, in April, which is the biggest monthly gain in seven and a half years, according to the National Association of Realtors. Kind of exciting. The market responded to that. Maybe there's some light at the end of this economic tunnel. Maybe we're kind of bottoming out, and we're going to start building and clawing our way out of this morass of bad data. Maybe, maybe it's feeling well. And then maybe along the way we'll talk a little bit about Air France and the crash that occurred off of uh, the country of Brazil last night. Uh, with a plane disappearing, and um, we'll, we'll see what your thoughts on that. Uh, they're saying it was hit by lightning and bad weather. Was it really? Who knows? What are your thoughts on it? I know a lot of people are thinking differently. The number is 866-954-4276, right here on The Rich Rothman Show, right here on 880 The Biz. Stay there. We'll be right back. The J. Molina International Trade Consortium, or the ITC, promotes Miami-Dade County as a global gateway by enhancing international relations, cultural understanding, and international trade. 
Every year, the ITC leads two business development missions to countries that have the potential to increase trade with our community through Miami International Airport or the Port of Miami. The ITC is the official county agency charged with the development of this trade and functions as an umbrella organization or clearinghouse for other trade development efforts within the county. Our vision is to promote and strengthen Miami-Dade County's excellent business climate, strong international financial services, and rich cultural diversity, making it the logical platform for trade with Latin America and the Caribbean. For more information about the J. Molina International Trade Consortium, go to MiamiDade.gov slash ITC or call us at 305-375-5808. Seaboard Marine is an ocean transportation company that provides direct regular service between the United States and the Caribbean Basin, Central and South America. Seaboard Marine's success in the region for nearly 25 years has enabled it to expand into new markets, now serving nearly 40 ports in over 20 countries. Seaboard Marine's facilities include a private terminal of nearly 70 acres at the Port of Miami. Seaboard Marine carries more cargo to and from the Port of Miami than any other carrier. Although this facility complies with and exceeds all governmental security mandates, it operates seven days a week, 365 days a year, a unique convenience for its customers. Seaboard Marine serves these routes from Miami. Bahamas, Grand Cayman, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Eastern Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, North Central America, South Central America, Venezuela, and the West Coast of South America, including Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Seaboard Marine, a trade leader in the Western Hemisphere. Should commodities be part of your investment portfolio in 2009? What might be the performance for commodities in 2009? Where are the energy prices going? Is the bearish trend coming to an end in the U.S. dollar? Should I own gold or silver? Will the cost of food go up or down? If these questions are important to your investment strategy, then you should be talking to MB Wealth, a full-service commodity brokerage, to find out how MB Wealth is positioning its clients to take advantage of commodities over the next few months and quarters. Let MB Wealth help you at the retail level or advise you on a partial asset allocation with a commodity trading advisor with an established track record. In this volatile economy, it is more important than ever to have a diversified portfolio. Find out more on commodity investment specifics by calling MB Wealth at 954-929-9997 or log on to our website at www.mbwealth.com. While you're there, check out MB Wealth's weekly commodity commentary plus monthly research articles, tools that can help with your investment decisions. Call Matt Bradbart, President MB Wealth, at 954-929-9997 for all the details. MB Wealth, a full-service commodity firm. The risk of loss in trading commodity futures and options can be substantial. All funds committed should be purely risk capital. Past performance is no guarantee of future trading results. No one covers local, national and world news like Rich Robin. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL, customer service is back in shipping. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. This is the Rich Rothman Show. 
Welcome back, everybody, uh, to the Rich Rothman Show. It's uh, about 11 minutes after the hour of 5, and if you're on I-95, enjoy yourself. Enjoy the express lane. It's a great idea to take it. Looks like they're putting another one in on the other side coming south. Uh, well, we have Peter Cohen on the show. Peter Cohen. How are you, Peter? I'm good. How are you? Uh, Peter Cohen and Associates with a great book out right now. Peter, tell them the name of your new book. It's called You Can't Order Change, Lessons from Jim McNerney's Turnaround at Boeing. Boy, everyone better read that book right now and find out what's going to happen because a graduate of Boeing, uh, Mullally, uh, at Ford seemed to have his act together. You notice that Ford doesn't show up in the news that much right now. Well, it showed up today because it's gaining market share on the other ones. Right, except for that, except for that. It's showing, it's showing up in the news for good reasons. Yeah, well, because they had to, like, it would appear that they really made some good decisions over the last 18 months to two years, three years. The big decision that they made that really helped them was that they borrowed a lot of money when the um, capital markets were open, so they have this big cash cushion. And they've also moved to uh, smaller cars and more fuel-efficient cars um, because of the, uh, I guess, the grandson or the great-grandson of Henry Ford, uh, Bill Ford, has been pushing them in that direction. So I think those are two big things that have really uh, helped Ford avoid having to take money from the government. Well, maybe it's because Bill Ford is on so many committees uh, for uh, conser- you know, conservation and ecology and uh, environmental protection. I mean, he really did get involved in that. Yeah, he, he's a big believer in it, and maybe green is green. So, you know, hey, you know, it's not all that bad. No, no maybe it'll so. come back. Hey, listen, Peter, we've been talking about this uh, for months. Yes. Uh, the, the pending doom of um, of uh, General Motors, and I don't I don't think you've been very positive that, about General Motors and its management decisions. I know I haven't, and I never quite understood. You know, before we get in, you did a you did a piece the other day after 101 years why GM failed, and you gave five nice reasons that we can talk about. But you know, why is it that the stockholders, which is one of your reasons, why didn't they remove Wagner earlier? I just don't understand that. Well, it's a, a big problem with corporate governance at GM, and uh, I wouldn't single GM out as the only American company that does it. You know, the basic problem is that, you know, when you're on the board of directors, you get paid uh, good money, um, and usually they have interlocking boards, so the CEO of one company has the, their, the CEO of the other on the board. So they're all kind of ratcheting up their compensation. The point is that nobody wants to rock the boat. Um, nobody gets rewarded for rocking the boat. Uh, if you look at uh, people trying to rise up in a company, trying to get promoted, there's nobody in the in the business world that gets promoted by talking about all the bad decisions their boss is making. They they get promoted by talking about how great their boss is and and praising the, their boss to the sky. That's how you move up in an organization. So if the boss is making the wrong decision, uh, they're not going to hear any information about what's wrong with the company, how it's uh, not working uh, effectively to meet customer needs, or it's not competing well costs are too high, uh, those kinds of things are not going to come out of, uh, you know, people in the organization who are trying to get promoted. So it's like the fear factor. It's, you know, it's a bubble. I mean, basically, uh, a successful company, uh, you know, strives to be isolated from what's really going on. And, you know, people who are giving you information about how the business is doing are always trying to tell you how great it is uh, rather than expose the problems because the people who talk about what's wrong end up getting fired. And that's a, that sends a strong signal to everybody else, you know, don't bring up any problems, otherwise you're going to lose your job and miss out on your promotional opportunity. Okay, now, having said all of that, and, uh, and that, that's a very good analysis, by the way, let's talk about, you know, after 101 years, here was a company that Alfred Sloan said was, uh, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for America. And uh, boy, oh boy, has that changed or what since the 1930s? Well, it really has changed. Um, basically what happened is that... Um, the company had its peak market share, 54%, in 1954. Um, and uh, in the 1970s, uh, 
Japanese cars came in and they took market share from the bottom, the low end. And they kept going further and further upscale. You know, you had the Lexus taking away uh, share from the Cadillac and, you know, also the Mercedes and the BMW. Uh, the Japanese companies basically just um, executed a very nice strategy of coming in and, uh, you know, being ignored for their, their small cars that GM wasn't excited about selling. And uh, the management of GM basically um, managed it right into the ground. And if there's one interesting twist about GM, I mean, there's a lot of companies who get eaten up by these so-called disruptive technologies that come from the bottom and then eat their way up to the top. But one of the interesting things about GM is that it turned out that it was really a finance company that happened to sell cars. It didn't really care about making better cars. What it cared about is creating a delivery mechanism for a car loan, which is where it, it made a lot of money. It also happened to make a lot of money on mortgages. Um, but it was ba it was not really a car company. It was really a finance company. And, uh, well, they said they were losing money on every car they sold. Yeah, they lost money on cars. Um, I did an analysis of the industry in, uh, way back in 2005, which may have been the last year. It was actually the last year before GM uh, went bankrupt. GM has been bankrupt since 2006. If you look at their uh, financial statements, you'll see that their uh, liabilities exceeded their assets uh, by $5 billion in, 19, in 2006. And by uh, 2009, the, the uh, difference was more on the order of $91 billion. But the key point I was going to make is that back in the in the day, uh, 2005, when I did this analysis, GM actually uh, lost something like six billion dollars on cars, but made up a lot of it, uh, about 4.4 billion of it, um, on profits from loans. Um, another company, Ford, um, lost two billion dollars on cars, but made four billion dollars in profit on the loans. So, you know, the whole industry was sort of in in that mode. Um, Ford was not as bad as GM, but uh, you know, basically they were all losing money on cars and trying to make it up on the uh, on the loans. Very interesting. Let's go, let's go discuss some of these things. Number one, uncompetitive vehicles. I, I've always felt that they totally they they missed the mark. I, and I remember back in the in the seventies after the first OPEC uh, scenario in seventy three, seventy four, seventy five, they came out with the Vega, mm -hmm. which was a total disaster of a car. I remember it. I mean, I, I had I, I was dating a girl in those days at Syracuse, and she made a mistake of buying a cute little green Vega. It never ran. Huh. And she used to bring it back to the dealership in Syracuse. It was a brand-new car. Huh. And, and she was in tears there. And she was acutely crying to the service manager, who basically didn't, didn't care. Well, Not that, good. Yeah, that, that's, a key, that's a key thing there. I mean, basically, uh, GM was um, so successful for so long that it basically decided it really didn't need to trouble itself with the concerns of customers. Um, one of the things that's really amazing to me is that if you look at the numbers on Toyota, Toyota charged 14% more for their average vehicle than GM. Their average vehicle was 24.5, and, and GM's average vehicle was 21,000. So Toyota was able to actually charge more than GM, but Toyota also was able to build cars faster and at lower cost. They could build a car in 7% faster, 21.6 hours than GM. Uh, they enjoyed a 300 to 500 dollar per vehicle cost advantage over GM, part of which was in healthcare costs. Uh, and GM complained about having a 1500 per vehicle healthcare charge, while Toyota made most of its cars in countries where the government picked up much of the healthcare bill. Um, so not only that, but despite the fact that Toyota charged a 14% higher price uh, for its cars than uh, GM, Toyota had its plants running at 100% of capacity Whereas GMs were operating, you know, 60, 70% of capacity, they had to lay off people. Uh, and uh, 
at the end of the day, Toyota earned an average profit of about $1,500 a vehicle, while GM lost $2,300 per vehicle. So it was it was very clear that Toyota was beating uh, GM in the auto business in just about every dimension that matters. Right. We're on the phone right now with Peter Cohen of uh, Peter Cohen and Associates. Of course, you can you can catch Peter on <laughs> I can't tell you how many blogs. I mean, you're all over the place, Peter. You know, I see you on AOL and, and all the majors out that are out there. I want to go back to this GM thing. Um, I don't think they paid attention to uh, the competition. You said number number three in your in your blog the other day was ignoring competition. Oh yeah, I mean this is this is uh, you know related to what I just talked about. But you know, here's the key thing: there was an exception. There was this guy named Roger Smith, um, who uh, some people really hated. I guess there was this guy Michael Moore, uh, who had one of his first films was basically all about how horrible. Roger, Roger and me. Roger and me, yeah. And but Roger Smith did something that was really good, um, which uh, I believe he doesn't get much credit for, um, which was to start Saturn. And Saturn, you know, a lot of people didn't even realize it was part of GM. It was set up as a separate business, um, and it won um, customer satisfaction competitions against Toyota and dealer satisfaction competitions against Toyota. So basically, it was compete. It was set up to compete against Toyota, and it was winning. And the only problem was that as soon as Roger Smith left the, the CEO job, his successor uh, basically let it kind of fall by the wayside. But what he wanted to do was to create a new car company that could compete with the Japanese. A different and, car, a different company. And then infuse, infuse GM, the parent company, with the, the, the a strategy and the culture of Saturn. And it, and it completely backfired. It didn't work. Uh, and if it had worked, GM would not be bankrupt today. All right. The next one is failure to innovate. Now, I'm, I'm high on that one to complain about General Motors. I don't, their innovation to me was coming out with the next seven-passenger SUV. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, GM um, basically uh, was not an innovator. And um, you know, this gets a little bit theoretical, but um, I've been teaching a lot of cases to MBA students in the last couple of uh, Days or so, and, and one of the key concepts I have is this concept of, of the value cycle. Um, and essentially, it falls into three pieces. Value creation means how you go and talk to customers and build uh, a product that meets their needs better than anybody else. Value capture means setting your prices and costs so that you can earn a profit. And value renewal is how you reinvent the firm so that uh, you can stay ahead of the competition and you can um, meet evolving customer needs and, and take advantage of new technologies. And if you look at what happened with GM, uh, they clearly just fell down in the area of renewing themselves starting in 1954. Uh, and, you know, with some exceptions, uh, basically their, their market share is now about 19%. They, they've, they've squandered their market share because they failed to, to reinvent themselves. And, uh, you know, if you look at car after car, uh, they, they have fallen behind. Um, uh, their competition, and and that that's another big reason why they're uh, bankrupt. I mean, their their big push this weekend down here in Florida uh, was the new uh, hybrid Escalade, which they're saying is terrific, and it actually gets 20 miles to the gallon. I mean, wow! I mean, an under wow, low, lower case, yeah. not even bold. Basically, you know what they call innovation is something that's sort of not as good as the competition. And right. what I'm talking about when I talk about innovation is something that's much better than the competition. I mean, it's not enough to match Toyota or Nissan or, or whatever the other competitor is. If you want to win, you've got to be better. And, you know, they really, uh, they really don't uh, understand that. And this is one of the things I'm a little concerned about, actually, is 
whether uh, the current uh, bankrupt GM and the management will be able to get that idea into their mind that they have to actually be better than the competition. And uh, one final thing, then we're going to get off, because um, I know you got to run. Managing in the bubble, we talked about that before. They just totally missed the market, don't understand where it's going. Well, you know, this is a problem that is very common in large organizations, and it's something that uh, I'm going to use this, a technical term called confirmation bias. I wrote, wrote some articles about that. Basically what it means is that the CEO or the, the leader of the company expects a certain thing to, 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 to expect to hear a certain thing in their ear when they talk to the people who are in their company about how the business is doing. They want to hear that the business is going great. They want to hear that their strategy is working. Um, and as a result of that, if somebody brings them information that's not consistent with what they want to hear, they ignore it. And in an extreme case, they'll fire people. Uh, who tell them something other than what they want to hear. So as a result, they, they create a bubble around themselves that is a, basically a complete fiction, um, a complete illusion, of, and it's completely at odds with reality. So if you're a competitor, if you're a, an entrepreneur trying to compete with a company like that, if you understand what's in the, the CEO's mind and what they expect, you can compete with them, and they won't even respond to you because they don't understand... Uh, what's really going on. They've created a, an information system around them which only tells them what they want to hear rather than what's really going on in the world. And that is a very common problem and it's an indictment of American management that there aren't more companies like uh, Intel in, in the 1980s where they basically thought to themselves, the CEO said, what would happen if the board fired us tomorrow? What would we do with this strategy of this business? And at Intel what they did was they completely changed the strategy uh, while keeping the same management in place because that's the way they were thinking. They were thinking about uh, sort of a healthy paranoia, only the paranoid survive, and that is sorely missing from too many American companies. So in a way, though, let me think what we could call that. Mm. Intellectual creationism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. How do you like that? Well, listen, yeah. Peter, I, I know you got to run. Uh, Wanda said you're, you're out at 25 after and we're just about there right now. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on your air, and uh, I hope that... Uh, we get to talk again soon. Uh, this is Peter Cohen. Uh, he's the president of Peter Cohen and Associates. And don't forget, get a hold of his book at uh, Borders or Amazon, all the major bookstores. And it's uh, Jim McNerney's uh, Lessons from Jim McNerney's Turnaround at Boeing. You can't change. change. You can't order change. Take care, Peter. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, but I, I love listening to Peter because I think he has this great insight. And, and we have more to talk about, which we will in just a few minutes, regarding... Uh, you know the uh, the car companies, but I want to have a. How much time do I have? One? I have about what seven minutes or so. For about four minutes, let's get Sammy on the phone. Sammy, are you there? Yes. Hey, Sammy. Sammy. It's great talking to you, Sammy. This is Rich Rob. We're talking to Sammy. Sammy from the Village Tannery. Sammy, where is the Village Tannery? Uh, Village Tannery located on the on the New York City and the Greenwich Village on Bleecker Street. That's right. It's been there for well a long, long time. How many years have you been there, Sammy? Uh, we have been to business thirty-five years. Thirty-five years. Now let me explain what they do. Sammy has a company, uh, uh, the Village Tannery, and I've been going there for decades. In fact, I've been going there since before I even left New York. And uh, and they sell wonderful leather products. And what are some of the products that you sell other than the fact that I always buy my book, uh, my briefcases from you? But what else do you sell? Uh, only the uh, for the uh, backpack briefcase and the ladies' purses, all the daily items. And everything made by us. Uh, we have a small workshop close by the uh, my store and also another store located on the East Village. Well, I have to tell you, I was in New York last week for a meeting in, in a, uh, a cocktail reception with uh, Peter Miller. 
and Peter Mill and Associates. And uh, so I went over to Washington Square, in an area that I kind of grew up in back in the 60s, and um, was very pleased to see that the village tannery was still there, and was overjoyed to see that. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and purchased uh, another briefcase, which, by the way, I got the other day, and it's phenomenal, and I'm very excited to have it. And also, you know that we are under our lifetime warranty. Yeah, a lifetime warranty. Yeah. But the point is, these things really do last a long time. My last one that I bought... It's lifetime. It, it does. It's a lifetime. It's right. a lifetime. Your lifetime or the lifetime? Well, the as long as you're on the back. As long as you're on the bag. Okay. This just stays with you. This is like baggage you that you carry along, literally. And also, also, you and we make our bag, but we can, you can't bring your own idea. We can't make it for you. There you have it. There's creationism again. Yeah. There we have it. So the point is, I had a bag that I bought back in uh, April of 94. I had been using it up until just two days ago when my new bag showed up. And I've got to tell you, they make great products. And, and we, Wanda, we've never really had anybody on from a retail shop in, in the 19 months or so we've been doing this. Yes, we have uh, a few right Just now. hair. Just, yeah, just hair. Right, exactly. I remember that. But, but it was I, when I was with Sammy, I said, listen, you know, he gave me a great deal on a great bag in a great store you know if you're looking for something that uh, a company that's been around for a long time here we're talking about general motors and, uh, yeah. and, and they're bankrupt you know this is the biggest company in the united states I know. we have the village tannery right there on uh, is it on, it's on um uh, bleaker bleaker street between mcdougall and sullivan 173 bleaker it, you know what, i gotta tell you it, it doesn't get much better than that because i used to spend every one of my friday and saturday nights down there and also the good part is that my store is that we open very late hours uh seven days a week 11 a.m to 11 p.m only friday and saturday we open to one o'clock in the morning so now if people can't get to new york sammy how can they get a hold of the village tannery uh, because mostly, you know, like you, I depend on my repeat customers and the people see I'm back on the other states and all over the Europe and United States and the South America. So, uh, we built up our business a long time. As your uh, guest, uh, the station said a few minutes ago, if you want to win, you have to better. So we try to do better and we serve our customers better service. Do you have a website? Uh, we have a website. All right, real quick, quick. we got 30 seconds. Give the website. Uh, Village Tannery at AOL.com. Village Tannery, for those who can't spell, T A N N E R Y, yes. at AOL.com. Yes. Village Tannery. And I got to tell you, check it out and uh, get their phone number. You can get a hold of Sammy and tell him that Rich Rothman sent him. All right, Sammy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. You'll be here on the You show. bet. I'll see Thank you when I'm in New York next time. Thank you. Thank All right, you. take care, Sammy. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to be right back on the Rich Rothman Show on 880 The Biz. It's 30 minutes after the hour. Uh, looking forward to having you back. We're going to talk health care when we return. Do not go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Port of Miami is the second largest economic engine in our community, providing an annual economic base of over $16 billion and over 100,000 jobs. These are high-paying in-demand jobs, very much coveted by other cities and ports throughout the Americas. We're fortunate to have this business, and of that $16 billion, international trade and cargo at the port accounts for over $13 billion per year, a significant fact, as well as a significant economic impact for all of us. The Port of Miami, working to enhance and contribute to the economic success of our country, further reinforcing Miami and South Florida as the gateway to the Americas. A new terminal that is larger than some mid-sized U.S. airport. The new Miami International Airport. A new 350-space ground-level short-term parking lot. The new Miami International Airport. The only U.S. airport with sleep pods. The new Miami International Airport. 
the international gateway to the Americas with more flights to South America than all U.S. airports combined. The new Miami International Airport. And coming soon, 61 new retail and food shops to add to your airport savoir faire. Come experience the new Miami International Airport and watch us move towards the future. The new Miami International Airport. You know where I'm spending my next romantic evening out with my wife? At Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Maybe we'll start the evening with a five-star dinner at the newly opened Fontana Ristorante, enjoying their authentic Italian cuisine prepared by renowned chef Gaetano Accione. Or perhaps we'll dine at the acclaimed Palm d'Or restaurant. Zaga called Palm d'Or one of the best restaurants in the country. South Florida's best restaurants are at the Biltmore Carl Gables Miami. On Thursday after dinner, we could really enjoy Biltmore Unplugged. Live jazz music poolside at the Cascade Bar and Grill. Fine food and live jazz is awaiting your next romantic evening at Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Visit www.biltmorehotel.com for more information or call them at 1-800-747-1926 for reservations. The perfect night out is at Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Do you own a business outsourcing your accounting? Then call the accounting and tax experts at TNJ Tax Service. For over 30 years, TNJ Tax Service has been preparing taxes for South Florida companies and individuals. As enrolled agents with the Internal Revenue Service, the pros at TNJ Tax Service can represent you or your company professionally to the IRS. Have challenges with your company's bookkeeping? Then call TNJ Tax Services. QuickBooks certified. TNJ Tax Services can provide training on QuickBooks for any small business. If you need monthly or quarterly bookkeeping services to handle all of your payroll and business needs, then you need to call TNJ and J Tax Service, located at Taft and Flamingo in the Pillbox Plaza. Call 954-432-1700. 954-432-1700. TMJ Tax Services. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rockman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL. Customer service is back in shipping. From Atlantic Radio Network. Just a bit outside. This is the Rich Rothman Show. 880 AM. The Biz. Welcome back to the show. It's 32 minutes after the hour of 5. And uh, right now we're well into drive time going home. And we hope uh, you have a safe, uh, pleasant journey going there. We can keep you entertained and teach you something along the way. We'd be happy to do that. And the number here is 866 954 4276-866-954-4276. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, tell us your opinion, tell us what you think about what we're discussing. We'd like to hear it from you and uh, get your opinion. Anyway, on the show right now is Dr. Charles Russo from Fort Lauderdale. Charles, how are you? Okay, Rich. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I am, you know, I, I get concerned when I listen. We were just talking to uh, Peter Cohen, who's been on the show many, many times. From, I, heard uh, I heard that. It was a great conversation. Yeah, and, and you know, y what was isn't and what isn't can be and everything seems to be changing uh, including sometimes the truth of what things are and I get a little concerned about that you know I'm not happy that GM uh, filed bankruptcy but on the other hand uh, I guess given the fact that this is the way things going in a free market economy you know if you can't run your company right and you can't produce the products right and you can't do things correctly with your financing then you know it's a natural course of events to you know have a company go down 
And, uh, Absolutely. And now we're going to talk about something bigger than GM, one-seventh of the economy, medicine. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things, uh, Charles, that everyone has an opinion. I mean, I was discussing it with my partner here about an hour and a half ago, and I said, you know, we're going to be talking about health care. And, uh, and and people are all over that. People say, "Oh my God, we can't get you know socialized medicine. Great, we got to have it because so many Americans, you know, this it's not fair. A lot of people can't get health care in the United States, and a lot of people are suffering. And then we listen to the president say that you know if we don't pass it now, we're never going to pass it, and we have to pass it now because well we have to pass it now. Well, the problem the problem is whether it's the rhetoric on the left or the rhetoric on the right, everybody cites whatever they need to cite at the time to, pr to make their point. The fact that they distort data, they don't report data, the fact that unfortunately in this country we can't have an honest dialogue about these things is very, very sad. Uh, the fact that they don't trust the American people to make a good judgment based on solid facts and that they have to distort the facts or, or just uh, cite uh, um, partial facts to get their point across uh, it is just kind of sad. Um, I'm not saying I have any great solutions for the health care crisis, but one thing I hope to bring to today's conversation is, is showing people what statistics there are out there that show that in socialized systems, things are far from perfect, and, um, and we do have a, even a model in this country that's probably better than any socialized model out there, and um, we can talk about that, too. Well, what, what concerns me uh, greatly is that, you know, you listen to people who are very much against socialized medicine, including members of parliament who have been on many talk shows in the United States saying, don't do this. This is an utter failure uh, for our country, for England, for one thing. This is coming from a member of parliament from England who said, this is an utter failure. If we go down that road for socialized medicine, you are going to lose that ability to make your own decision and move forward with a plan to protect the health care of your family and yourself. Even more than that, there's only one of those countries, uh, despite Europe and Israel, uh, that uh, has outlawed the private practice of medicine, and that's Canada. So in all those other countries, England, France, Germany, Israel, they have a two-tiered system. They have a private system you can go to any time with money and get whatever care you want from anybody at, at the drop of a hat. And um, uh, if you, if you, it's the people who don't have that go into the public system. And people here are saying, well, that they should have something. But, you know, you've got to start talking about the statistics legitimately, too. We hear the 45 to 50 million people in this country that, uh, you know, don't have health insurance. Does anybody tell it, everybody that, uh, you know, a large proportion of those people, perhaps as, as much as, as 15 million of them, are making between 75 and $100,000 and just don't want to pay for it? And another 15 million of them are between 18 and 28 and don't think they need it? And, you know, what you're left with is what, uh, 12 to 15 to 17 million, 12 million of whom are, are eligible for Medicaid and don't take it? You know, so, what, you know, they're manufacturing a crisis where there really isn't any, and nobody wants to do what needs to be done. I think we made the point on another show that in order to make the system work, and Massachusetts is facing this battle now, and California is going to face it next, you've got to get everybody into the system, which means you have to legislate everybody into the system, which means you have to have some way to account for everybody, which creates these other problems in terms of illegal immigration and the fact that people have to have identity cards of some sort. And as I said, the libertarians on the right don't like that, and the liberals on the left don't like that. But you, you, somewhere in the middle, you've got to decide what's important and what you want to do. We're on the phone right now with Dr. Charles Russo, uh, author of the book, The Fort Lauderdale Diet, right here in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Our number at the studio is 
4276 if you'd like to ask Dr. Charles Russo a couple of questions or you have an opinion you'd like to make. Charles, let's go back to this. One of the things that I hear constantly from people is that folks who have no money can't get any health care. If they go into a hospital, they're just not going to get treatment. And I don't think that, I think that's a myth. Uh, it, it's absolutely a myth. The amount of free care that goes, as a matter of fact, in, in this country, if they wanted to solve this health care crisis immediately, if they gave doctors and hospitals credit for 50 cents on the dollar for the amount of free care that they give, we'd all do it uh, in, in a second because none of us would pay any taxes anymore. There's so much uh, uh, care that is given away in this country. Anybody that walks into an emergency room, whether they're an illegal immigrant or not, um, uh, you know, gets care when they need it and how they need it. But that's the law, isn't it? I, mean, I thought they would yeah, use their right to be a hospital. You cannot turn anybody away. You can, that is a law. You cannot turn anybody away. And there are doctors always on call in every specialty that have to come in uh, and are bound to take care of those patients. And, you know, we always we, that's the way the system has always been. We have always say you take the good with the bad, and, and, and there's always a lot more good than there is bad, and, and the physicians, for the most part, and the hospitals are willing uh, uh, to give the care. Uh, but when you have tax dollars that are supposed to be paying for, uh, you know, uh, not-for-profit uh, uh, uh community hospitals to do that and private hospitals are bearing a big burden and they don't want to share those dollars with them it becomes a big political battle too um, but you know some of, some of the statistics that people don't realize in terms of uh, uh, socialized medicine and how it works these myths that are out there for instance um, nobody probably uh, realizes that uh, for five-year all cancer survivor rates in the United States are, is 63%, where in Europe, that has a beautiful socialized system, their uh, cancer survival rates across the board are only 56%. Okay? Uh -huh. Now, how would you like to be in that, uh, you know, uh, small group well, that it, doesn't survive? Well, yeah, no, it, it even gets, it even gets um, worse than if you look at specific uh, cancers in specific um, uh, and, and specific uh, uh, countries too. Uh, for instance, you would think in socialized medicine they have better screening rates. Canada, that's held up as as a model for uh, socialized medicine and what it should be. The fact of the matter is that um, their cancer screening rates, their Pap smear rates uh, for breast cancer, for cervical cancer, and for prostate cancer are half what our screening rates are to a third of what our screening rates are. And this is in a system where it's provided all for free. Well, there, there was another uh, stat. Now, by the way, there's a report that came out that Charlie and I were looking at. It's entitled, Healthcare Reform, Do Other Countries Have the Answers? Written by uh, a number of people, including folks from the National Center for Policy Analysis, uh, the Independence Institute, the National Center for Policy Analysis, again, uh, Devon Herrick, and the Department of Surgery and Institute of Human Values in Healthcare from the Medical University of South Carolina. And one of the things they point out, for example, uh, in comparing the United States to other socialized areas, is that between 2002 and 2004, dialysis patients. Now, dialysis is something that's fairly common in the United States right now, I oh, presume. Absolutely. And when you need it, you need it. Right. So dialysis patients in the U.S. waited an average of 16 days for permanent blood vessel access in the U.S., 20 days in Europe, and 62 days in Canada. In Canada. Absolutely. Now, 62 days could be devastating to somebody. Oh, that's the, that's the point that the report makes, too. A lot of these health care systems that show better morbidity and mortality uh, rates than the United States system uh, does is because they bury their mistakes. <laughs> There's a certain amount of people that just are not going to survive that 60-day that wait for permanent access. 
and they're going to have other complications from infection and, and, and so on. Uh, and, the, and you're right, that whole report is riddled with statistics all over the place. Hip surgery weights um, in Norway, they're another paragon of socialized medicine. Uh, and, and by the way, hip surgery, 133-day wait. Cataract surgery, 63-day wait. Knee surgery, 160-day wait. Open heart surgery, again, not usually a, a, an elective procedure. 46-day wait. All of those weights are negligible in the United States. Negligible. Well, let me ask you a question. If someone needs hip surgery, I mean, wouldn't they be getting that almost overnight? If, if that's yeah, absolutely. In this country, you've you've got access to doctors and, and hospitals. Uh, they can get certainly they can get it within days, not within within a week, not certainly. Uh, well, in, let, let, let's let's go to this point. Let's say somebody uh, is in a car wreck. And uh, oh, they no, need that's done, that's done immediately. That's immediately. That's immediately. That's immediately. Okay. Yeah, uh, but I think they were talking about total hip replacement, elective surgery. Elective surgery. Okay. Yeah, for, for that sort of thing, but you know, Canada's uh, uh, you know uh, rate for um, things like mammograms and and uh, and pap smears are, are, as I said, half hours or third hours. They're Cancer, uh, breast cancer survival rates are 25% less. Their prostate cancer survival rates are 18% less, and their colon cancer survival rates are 13% less. I mean, it, these are not good statistics if you're, uh, you know, people with those types of cancer. Um, and what was really interesting in, the re in that report was that when you talk about something like the British health system and access to health care and, and things in terms of uh, uh, getting access to a specialist as well as the convenience of care, comprehensive care, and the cost. Kaiser Permanente beat the British health care system like a drum. Ooh. So, um, you know, there's, when you look around the world for models of health care, we probably have one of the better models in this country um, than, than you're going to find anywhere else. And in addition to the fact that report, as, as you've alluded to, brings out that there are lots of myths in things. These other countries that say their health care costs are less don't have things in their reports such as the fact that they had to collect money in terms of taxes to pay for this health care. Well, when you look at places like Norway and Sweden, they have extremely high tax bases. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But there are other re realities here, too. GM can't compete, nor can these other car companies. Nobody wants to, you know, talk about it. It's the other 800-pound gorilla in, in the room. But, you know, how can you expect American companies to compete when they have to spend $1,500 a car on health care? Uh, should there be some system that takes this away from our uh, industries so that they can compete with the rest of the world. How can you compete with a Mercedes or a BMW when they don't even have that cost per car? And although Japan has a private system, they're not socialized, and yet they manage to compete. But, you know, what, what worries me is that, uh, for example, in, in Britain, I've been listening to a number of the MPs in Parliament uh, talk about this. You know, it, let's say you need, uh, it may not be elective surgery, maybe that you really do need a new kidney. All right, you have to apply for that, I guess, and then you wait for approval to have kidney transplant. And you might, depending upon your age and so forth, you might wait a long time for that, and, and you may never get it. Absolutely. Although there are waiting lists in this country for transplants too, and you are on dialysis. It's not like they're condemning you to death unless you're a certain age. I mean, in England, for a while there, there was an age limit for dialysis. Um, well, that's kind of scary. Yeah, no, that's, I think, gone by the wayside. Although, even in this report, it, it talks about statistics that, that we have nine times the, the uh, people that, um, uh, that Britain has on dialysis 
over the age of 85 and five times uh, the amount of people between the age of 45 and 84, and that's because of the access in this country. Well, let me, let's go to the other side for a second, and, and let's say maybe there are some abuses in the system. Of course there and, are. And I'll give you a good example. As you, you may or may not know, but uh, my wife, Gloria, uh, was in a car wreck uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, the front part of her car, let me think, disappeared in the wreck. And uh, she, um, she was taken to the hospital by uh, EMC, and they, they charged, it was a workman's comp claim, by the way, finally, and they charged $700 for the ambulance to go less than five miles and they said well uh, you know it was an excessive number of miles to drive which I found to be remarkable uh, and I said if it was any closer she would have had to have the wreck in the emergency room you know so it would be like oh we had an accident here well the good news is it's right here yeah. and uh, but when you you hear about things like that or in my case when I hurt my arm last summer and I had to wear a brace my brace was charged at almost a thousand dollars for something I swear Charlie it, it was maybe you know, twelve dollars worth of aluminum. Yes, the fifteen thousand dollar government hammer. Now, the problem is, though, if you look at the system, and I and I, I sat on hospital boards and I looked at the numbers that they threw up, and, and it's they're all fantasy numbers. I don't know how a hospital can make a budget and run because they really have no clue what they're going to get paid. They don't get paid that. They get paid whatever Medicare and/or the insurance company thinks is is a fair amount of money for well, that. They but you know what, Charlie? That's exactly what you know when uh, Gloria saw that and she almost you know grabbed her chest again because she she had a, a cracked sternum, a fractured sternum, and she said, "How can this be? Seven hundred? I mean, I, we could have rented a car yeah. if we wanted to. You could have rented a limo. Yeah, we could have rented a limo to go four and a half miles to get to the uh, you know the the, the a par, a regional west." Out there uh, in uh, in Miramar, but but my point is, you know, where do we go with this? And 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 what we're hearing is that, and the insurance company, oh, don't worry about that. We we never pay the seven hundred. They're going to settle for you know two eighty, mm -hmm. two thirty. So they write off the difference. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of screws up the accounting system a little bit. Oh, oh, so somewhere. There, there are abuses in this system. Oh no, absolutely there are. And the really scary part when you look at. Uh, uh, all of the countries that finance healthcare, whether it's public or private, whether they do it from general revenue or payroll taxes or third-party payers, nobody, not in any of these socialized countries or here, has figured out a way to decrease um, uh, healthcare costs. They just keep going up and up and up, and that's the real—that's the really scary part of, of this whole system. Uh, all you can do, you can control it a little bit in terms of decreasing how fast it rises, but it's, it, it just keeps rising. Well, how come I don't hear a lot about, you know, fraud? I find, you know, we know that South Florida is right oh, with yeah, Medicare yeah, fraud. Yeah, it depends, and it depends on who you read. It could be anywhere from 17 to 15 percent uh, of the, you know, Medicare budget is fraud. And believe me, we all wish they would take those people and put them in jail and get them out of the system. Uh, and you could find, you know, you could finance all of indigent care probably from the fraud you know that that occurs in there um, but at this point you need and the medicare had put in a supercomputer years ago they shut everybody down for about a month and didn't pay anybody so that they could put in a supercomputer to track this fraud but the fact of the matter is that there are smart people out there who know how to do these sorts of things and uh, and they get away with it and i'm worried about uh, did we code this right did we code that right you know stupid little things like that yeah but they're out there really usurping oh, the whole no, system no, yeah hundreds hundreds of millions uh, of dollars of fraud absolutely absolutely um, but i don't know 
whether there's, I'm sure there's fraud in these public systems too, to a certain degree. Um, I just don't think you hear about them, or they're or they're buried, or they or they figure the healthcare budget is just so big that it's not worth going after these people. I mean, if, they, if they're doing anything on a, a cost per, unless everybody's completely salaried. Um, uh, you know, if they're doing anything on a, on a cost basis, you know that there's fraud going on because somebody's going to figure out a way around it. You just hope you can minimize it um, and have uh, you know means in place to catch those people as, uh, as soon as you can. Let me ask you a question as a physician, and um, you know, you must have some current. What, what are the what's your biggest complaint about the healthcare system? What, what do you hear from the other docs out there? What if, if there's some common complaint that they're just really annoyed with, it wish it could be corrected. Well, I think I think the biggest problem we have at this point is is collecting from the third party payers. Uh, Medicare is a pleasure. You bill Medicare. Um, unfortunately, Medicare is almost like a blank check, which is the, the fraud That's the problem. But you know, if you bill, if I bill Medicare, I got I've got a check within two weeks. With these third party payers, you're it, it's just a big it's just a big game. You talk about Ponzi schemes. These guys get your money. They put it in a bank. There's billions of dollars, and every minute that that money spends in the ba- in the bank, never mind hours or days or weeks, every minute that it spends in the bank, these billions of dollars, they're earning interest. So it's a big game to them. They deny things across the board to begin with. Uh, they, if you don't cross every I or dot every T, they don't care about the patient, uh, uh, you know, getting service or the doctor getting paid. It's just a, a matter of them keeping this money in the bank as long as they can to earn as much interest as they can or to lend it out so that they can earn interest off of it um, uh, you know, b- before they pay it out. And it's just, it's just a battle. They have people now uh, at, at every turn battling with us. That doesn't need to be done. This doesn't need to be done. The other thing doesn't need to be done. At points, you just get disgusted and say to the patient, look, um, I can't deal with your insurance company anymore. You're going to have to call them yourself or call your agent or threaten a lawsuit because I don't have time to deal with this anymore. I would think that, you know, people say that, well, those doctors, they're making a fortune. I don't, my gut is, from what I read, that the doctors aren't making what they made years ago. Oh, no. Well, let me tell you, first of all, let me first say there are no starving doctors that I know. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I'm not however, saying however, that. However, yes, I have, a, I have a partner in my practice, God bless him, 73 years old, and he told me that, uh, because we've been cut back every year for the last five or six years by about 10% a year and about 20% this year, he said that we are charging less money now to do what we did than he charged in the 1970s when he came into practice. I mean, that's ridiculous. What other business do you know that's gone down that much in terms of what they're, they're able to build? Now, what, what can we do here? I don't know what we can do. Are you going to make their patient more responsible for these bills as opposed to uh, the insurance companies? I don't know that that's, that's you know, the right solution, too. I don't have any great answers. Well, uh, Charlie, it looks like the solution from a lot of people is going to be, let's let the government take care of it. Let's get into this socialized environment. Let's let the government administrate it. i got to tell you something, having dealt with the government on lots of other issues, I don't think I want the government making decisions on my health care if, if they just, you know, they lose the check that comes to me, no, they can't find right. it. They're good at writing the checks, which is why Medicare has worked so well. But if they start to regulate the system more tightly, uh, it, it's going to—it's definitely going to be a disaster, an absolute disaster. Uh, there are things that the government can do to help in, in other ways. Uh, for instance, what do we have now? Less than two percent of medical graduates are going into primary care, family practice, and internal medicine. Um, why? Uh, first of all. 
because Medicare because medicine uh, costs so much to learn now. Uh, the government can subsidize medical educations, and in return for that, it can hopefully get the best and the brightest to go back into medicine, where I see them going into business and finance now, although finance but may Charlie, down the tube. Charlie, there was a piece in Barron's yesterday about uh, Cuba, mm -hmm. uh, perspectives on Cuba and reflections on Cuban health care. And here's, here's, a, here's a quote. Cuba now trains about 30,000 doctors a year. That's a scary thought. More than any other European nation. It costs less than $10,000 to train an eye or cancer doctor in Cuba compared with a minimum of 250000 in the United States, in America. Now, i got to tell you, if i got a decision to make, let me think, do I want somebody who went to Duke or do I want somebody who went to Cuba? For I mean, isn't it a little scary? No, it is, and I, don't, I have not met any of these recently trained Cuban doctors. But that's what they tout that their healthcare system and their educational system are, are the you know there are no peers in the world. Oh yeah, why don't we ask some of the folks here in Miami if they really want to go back to Cuba for healthcare? I don't think it works that great down there. No. You know, I don't think Michael Moore is right on that one. Well, you know, if if the government wanted to help, though, that's one way they could help. We know what education costs, although you can debate whether or not these universities are overcharging or not charging. Although maybe the government should regulate what they can charge for this too. But if they if they had more subsidized uh, people going to medical school, made them. Um, become primary care physicians for four or five years to pay as, as a payback for their medical debt with a good salary while they were working, you'd probably find that 80% of them would stay in primary care. It would solve two problems. It would get bright people back into medicine because it wouldn't be a burden. We'd, we'd replenish our primary care uh, um, ranks. Ten which, seconds. Which really depleted and, and, you know, some people would go back for um, specialty training after that, but most people would not. Well, listen, uh, we've had Char Dr. Charles Russo on the phone from East Fort Lauderdale. And, Charlie, you're, which, is, which uh, hospital are you associated Holy with? Holy Cross Hospital in uh, Fort Lauderdale Cardiology Associates right up on uh, Federal Highway by Commercial Boulevard. All right. Charles Russo, the author of The Fort Lauderdale Diet. Check it out at Amazon.com. Charlie, thanks for being on the show. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Rich. Bye-bye. Take bye. care, my man. All right. Well, it's good to have you on the show today, and thanks for joining us here today. It's about 57 minutes after the hour. We'll see you next week on The Rich Rothman Show. Take care.